Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the show. This athletic podcast brought to you in association with the Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan. With me is Phil Hay. Hello, everybody. And the boys from the Square Ball, Michael Normanton. Hello. And Moscow White, Daniel Chapman. Hello. Final chance to take advantage of the Leeds pod deal if you want to get a 90-day free trial on The Athletic to read everything that Phil does and listen to all the podcasts without ads. Head to theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. Just to make you aware, that deal is ending at the end of May. So if you want to get on it, do it right now. Phil, we've seen photos. We have pictures finally of Leeds United players doing training at Thorpe Arch and it feels like football is almost upon us. It does. It does. They have been at Thorpe Arch previously, actually. It's not too much of a secret that quite a lot of the players have been using the running track that, that was installed there um, on Bielsa's insistence. And I think having initially looked at that running track and wondered how hard he was going to flog them on it, they've all been quite grateful for it in the lockdown because it is very easy for the security staff to wave them in individually and for them to run in isolation and get in the cars and, and go home. But the EFL have allowed one-on-one training this week, which has let more of them go up there um, and, and a bit more of a structured feel to it. Uh, and that's in advance of the, the start of group training this Monday coming, which feels like a pretty important line in the sand um, in terms of getting anywhere near playing matches again and, and getting the last nine games of the season done. So that's that's the thing that they're all focusing on. Bielsa was dead set on May the 16th, which was the initial date that the, the EFL set for the, the resumption of, of group training in some form. Um, so I imagine he's been climbing the walls a little bit this week. But unless something major goes on in the next 48 or, or 72 hours, it, it does look like training in some form will resume on Monday morning. And one of the big details to emerge over the last couple of days is that Leeds actually got ahead of the curve on this and bought their own or rented or hired one, a testing machine to be able to test for coronavirus. So we've got to give a doff of the cap to Rob Price and the team at the club, haven't we? Yeah, they, they have been ahead of the curve since the start. And I, I thought it was really interesting to hear Rob Price say a few weeks back that the first discussions about COVID had taken place at Leeds amongst their medical department at the end of January, which makes you realise how quickly they were on to it and, and also makes you realise that they were fairly sure that at some stage it was going to either interfere with the season or was going to require a change of, of protocol and, and some measures introduced to, to help keep the players away from it. Um, people will have read this week about the fact that Leeds have, have bought their own COVID machine which they have but they will be tested as part of the EFL central programme as, as all clubs will be the EFL want that to happen to make sure that they can monitor who's been tested what the results are to make sure that there are no anomalies and, and it should be said as well to make sure that there are no players or staff who contract the virus and, and then try to pretend that they haven't but I have been very impressed with the, le- the way that Leeds have handled this not only in a medical sense because it has felt as if they've been on top of it right from the start and it does feel as if they're able to return very comfortably and in in a way that the players are extremely happy with. But I also think they've done the right thing by saying as little as possible and getting as involved as little as possible in the process of working out how the games are going to restart, if indeed they do, and how a behind-closed-doors finish is, is going to be structured. Um, that's not to say they haven't been vocal in the, the conversations that have taken place with the EFL and um, with championship clubs, but it's all happened behind closed doors. And I think because they feel that they're in a very strong position in the table, which they obviously are, and, and also in a strong position with regards to any and points per game calculations I don't think they feel like they need to be throwing their weight around and I don't think they feel like it would, would help the cause um, to be doing that in any way so yeah I think of, of all the clubs that, that I've kind of kept an eye on through this it does feel as if Leeds have, have coped as well with Covid as anybody else and we've seen the plan is to have five weekends of matches with four midweeks in between so effectively it's spanning sort of a five to six week period which then allows time for the playoffs afterwards can we confirm that's the plan I saw that as a rumour online 
No, that that is what's been talked about, and I think at the moment June the twentieth is looking like a a fairly probable start date, um, assuming that everything goes well and, and that they are able to resume. Um, the, the Premier League start date seems very fluid, and the EFL haven't as yet confirmed when when the championship would um, begin again. But I think over the, certainly over the past twenty four hours or so, it, it does feel as if the Premier League are actually softening a little bit to the idea of starting earlier and getting done on June the twelfth um, in terms of the first weekend of matches, even though that leaves quite a short turnaround and even though the intensity of, of training of really top end high level training is going to be short and sweet for them I mean Leeds, Leeds will go back on Monday and, and they'll go back in groups of four as I understand it um, they, they'll have, they'll all have time slots when they're to be at Thorpe Arch and strict instructions not to be at the training ground when they shouldn't be most people will be barred from, from entering the main building and they'll have other protocol in place like um, top of the boxes for the players to get their individual kit out of which they will then take home and wash and they will shower at home rather than showering at the training ground and all the equipment that they use will need cleaned and sterilised um, after each session so it's it's a massive job and, and you know at the back of your head you still feel that there are an awful lot of things that could go wrong and, and could obstruct this again but essentially if they are back in, on June the 20th or there or thereabouts then it will leave five or six weeks for the entire programme to be done which will be nine games for each club obviously but but then the playoffs as well depending on what form they take so it's going to be very intense and it is going to be Saturday to Tuesday Saturday, Tuesday which is why at the outset Leeds decided that for training purposes they would keep the players at as high a level as they possibly could at home because they knew when this started um, started back again they would need to be in, in absolutely perfect shape one of our favourite pastimes on the Squareball podcast is to throw shade at other clubs, which is why I'll turn to Michael and Moscow on this one, and Hull City and this letter that's been leaked showing that they wanted the season to be ended. And whilst, of course, there is a wider concern at play here, it's not coincidence, is it, that all the clubs who are most vocal about the season being cancelled are the ones who are in jeopardy? I think for Hull in particular, it feels like they are really trying to get away with this because essentially cancelling the season now for them would mean that they get away with selling their best players in January and they just get to take that money and suffer no sporting consequence as a result of doing it. Whereas as their results show, they are going down, undoubtedly. Look, I was looking at the form. It's unbelievable how bad their form is, actually. I'd forgotten just how catastrophic it had been until I suggested that they should just forfeit every game 3-0 and people were tweeting me back to say that would be quite an improvement for them. Give me Barnsley. I like Barnsley's attitude, suing everybody. It gets forgotten that Barnsley are owned by um, Billy Bean and a crowd of Americans now, but that's... um, that's their plan. People seem to think little old Barnsley will follow the rules and not make a fuss, said their co-owner, Paul Conway. But they're not. They're just going to sue everybody. And I think that works. Bring it on. I'm an American, he says. And in American sports, we self-regulate. If someone breaks the rules, they're cheating the rest of us and we take action. And it's all about the um, the points deductions that we, we were I think we discussed the other week about whether Sheffield Wednesday and, and Derby and Co are going to get away with their FFP shenanigans w- without a punishment. And there is some talk. Well, yeah, the, the Barnsley owners are basically saying that if they start in the championship next season with something as tawdry as a points deduction, they will sue everybody. Probably us as well. Just get everybody involved. It was your colleague from The Athletic, Matt Slater, who covered this one, wasn't it, Phil? Uh, clubs in question, Derby, Birmingham and Sheffield Wednesday. Yeah, very much so. We, we 
went over this on a, a previous podcast um, about the, the general feeling towards it. And I think there is some sympathy out there for the ability of the EFL to handle this at the moment, given how difficult it is for people to meet face to face and given how complex these hearings and um, investigations can be, particularly when they, they reach the point of, of being decided. I mean, Hull, Hull obviously don't fall into the category of clubs who are under investigation from the EFL at the moment. But Michael's right that, that they were dropping like a stone and, and they seem to take a very calculated gamble. Well, I say calculated. I mean, they felt it was in January that they could sell Jared Bowen and they could sell Grzycki or at least lose lose Grzycki and stay up. They weren't going to make the playoffs, but they, they felt that they had enough breathing space. And, and as has been proven pretty adequately over the, you know, the, the two or three months that followed, they, they didn't have enough breathing space and they're in a huge amount of trouble. And I remember you asking me for my one to watch before Leeds played over at Hull and, and won 4-0. And, and I, I said it should be the goalkeeper because the goals were just flying past um, George Long at a rate of knots and there were another four in those games. And I think that the, the key thing to, to note with the championship is that there seems to be a fairly lone voice when it comes to, to ending the season here and now. I, I don't think that's to say that others like Luton and so on feel that it's necessarily easy to restart. And I think the financial implications for them of restarting are probably bigger and, and more complex. But it does feel as if Hull are the side who are sticking out here and Hull are the side who, who really are putting the, you know, sticking their necks out and saying, we, we don't want this to happen. And I didn't think it was a great look to send the letter in the first place. I didn't think it was a great look to complain when the letter emerged um, and was was made public, to complain about the fact that it had been made public. And if you go into League One and, and League Two, you'll find bigger differences of opinions. You'll find more clubs who are swaying one way or the other. And there does seem to be more of a kind of grown up and, and sensible debate. But I think rather than discussing whether you know the season should just end if the championship is actually able to play on, I think a far more reasonable discussion is something like the suggestion which has come from Millwall, which is that you know in terms of the cost of testing which can make the season happen and can make the last nine games happen perhaps that cost should be borne by the teams who who go up given that when they get into the Premier League they are going to be looking at substantially increased income um, that's not to say everybody would just support that and it's not to say it's the way it should be but I think an idea like that is something that you, you can discuss um, Hull City saying the season should be ended because from the outside it looks as if they're in deep trouble is not to my mind a, a credible argument isn't it about time the football league got a handle on this? Because they're starting to look a little bit toothless in all this, like it's escaping their control. It is. Uh, it uh, there does seem to be this insistence that the championship can be played, though, and and that surprises me because it is extremely complicated to to get it done, and it's more complicated than the Premier League because there's there's less money at this level. There are more games to be played. There are some very very big away trips for for certain clubs, including Leeds, who've got to go to Cardiff and Swansea. And it's not that you're not travelling in the Premier League, but the fixtures are going to be crammed into a very tight period, and and like we were saying earlier, are going to be back to back. So. How do you get players to hotels? How do you keep hotels in isolation? Are they going to be clean enough? Is it going to be safe enough? But I think at championship level, Huller seem to be a lone voice. That There doesn't seem to be much support for the stance that they're taking. And I've sensed, you know, particularly at the top end of the table, and this includes clubs in the playoff positions and clubs outside the, the playoff positions. I think everybody feels like there's a lot at stake. And actually, because there's so much at stake, it really is worth playing. And I don't see one club as in the case of Hull sticking a spoken I don't see that upsetting the entire the entire apple cart on points per game Phil can we just turn our attention briefly to League 2 because the League 2 clubs have decided because it's been decided across the EFL on a division by division basis from which they will get an overarching policy but League 2 have said we're canning the whole thing our preferred model is going to be unweighted points per game so basically however many games you've played dividing up the amount of points you got and whoever's highest is going up so if you apply that model to the championship, the table will finish exactly as it is because everybody's played 37 games. 
that will mean that Leeds will be promoted if the season doesn't finish? It means that Leeds will finish top and will finish as champions and all things being equal will be promoted unless the Premier League can't finish and and an argument ensues about whether or not clubs should be relegated from that division having failed to play all 38 games given the the massive, massive financial implications that that come with dropping out of that league. The situation in League 2 still needs to be officially ratified. It it needs to be voted and and passed by the EFL as a whole. But given that League 2 want to go that way and are clearly in no position to start training again or to to start up matches that I'm sure that that will go ahead and I still feel that the clubs in League One who want to play and, and want to get their season done are, are very much swimming against the tide and swimming against general opinion in that division which seems to be against them but in terms of PPG absolutely the, the model as the um, the EFL are describing it um, so unweighted um, no difference between home and away games means that Leeds would finish top and actually even if there was weighting given to um, the matches that remain home and away fixtures to, to work it out in that sense um, Leeds would still finish in first place and, and would be champions. So essentially the biggest threat to Leeds United's promotion now is Leeds United playing. It's the biggest threat to Leeds United's promotion if um, the games are played. I think if the games aren't played, the biggest threat to them would be some machination in the Premier League, which led to a huge fight over whether or not three clubs should drop out of the league, and, and if not, whether there then had to be a discussion about whether the league could, could expand. But essentially, if the games resume at, at both levels, then it, it is 100% in their hands. You would expect a rule change to come in this summer as well, once this is all done and dusted and dealt with. So if heaven forbid this happens again, if they need to then can a season earlier or whatever, then there is a, a precedent for it and a policy in place. I would think so. Uh, these things would normally be agreed at the summer AGM in the way that the, the changes to the rules made after Spygate last season um, were. The, the EFL isn't able to just implement a rule like that off its own back and, and instantly the, it needs to go to a vote and it needs to be discussed um, at the, the annual general meeting that, that normally takes place in June over in Portugal. That obviously won't be happening this year. I don't know what the plan is for an AGM and, and how that will take place. And, and clearly the date that would have been set aside for it will now, as things stand, fall in the period when when fixtures will be played. But you're right, at some stage they're going to have to legislate properly for this and and to look at a a scenario where in future they know how this will all be resolved if and when you have another shutdown of of this sort. And and everybody seems sensible enough to accept that COVID isn't going away quickly. It isn't going to disappear in time for next season. So you cannot discount the possibility that another shutdown will come because of exactly the same virus and, and exactly the same circumstances. I want to get everyone's take on the points per game thing as well. And we'll turn to you last, Phil, if that's all right, because you've been affected by this on a sporting level personally this week with Hearts. But Michael and Moscow, points per game unweighted. Do we agree with that? Seems absolutely perfect to me. Yep, lovely. I'll see you in the Premier League. It's the fairest uh, solution. We should probably just do it for every season from now on, make them play, you know, just a minimum number of games and then settle the rest with maths. Yeah, I must admit, as terrifying it is as it is to be maybe playing games to be promoted, it is far preferable isn't it like I know the players have said this as well they want to do it properly and I want to do it properly as well as much as I don't want to see us mess it up it will feel slightly deflating to go up just being told as um, you know Celtic were this week by the way you're champions and you just have to kind of go all right that's good you know I know it'd be behind closed doors and I've come to accept that now but I'd still rather we got to beat Derby or Barnsley or someone and that's the day we go to get promoted rather than just finding out on a Monday lunchtime. That's the thing, isn't it? It gives you that day, it gives you that chance to celebrate or commiserate. And in the case of Hartsville, your team have been relegated by points per game this week. So interested to get your take on that. I'm not going to be too partisan about this because I, I do actually think that points per game is a fair and reasonable way of deciding a league, which is a, a long way done and, and doesn't have too many games left to play. I, I totally understand the argument as well. And, and this is what Hearts have been saying from the start, that 
nobody should be damaged by a COVID nineteen shutdown. Um, it seems fair to award titles and you know other things like that. Um, but to relegate clubs on on that basis is is potentially very unfair. I think the thing you have to accept at Hearts is that they have been entirely woeful this season and, and have been woeful for longer than this season and I think that there are issues with the, the management there there are issues with the, the way in which the playing side has been run and, and from my personal point of view as well issues with the, the length of time that was given to, to Craig Levine as manager so you have to accept that Hearts are going down because they in part because they put themselves in harm's way and were in a position in the league that, that they shouldn't have been in and have no excuse for, for being in and big mistakes have been made that I think they, they have to face up to but my problem up north, less than the actual points per game metric itself, it's the, the manner in which decisions were taken. It's the, the shambles of the vote that was taken to decide it and the various sort of unsatisfactory issues with that, which are still to be resolved and, and still being fought over. And it remains to be seen whether or not this ends up in court. But I think there's a, a high likelihood that it will. Do you think that when it comes to settling the Premier League, because we've already heard the noises coming from a variety of teams who've said they'll be refused to be uh, relegated and so on and so forth, you know, if the championship doesn't finish and play to a conclusion. We've had all the takes on that. Do you think there'll be some sort of general agreement amongst all the clubs where they have to sign up to it to agree that that's how the season will be concluded? So it's like a formal legal document. Well, it would absolutely make sense, but it would be almost typical of the way football operates not to do that and then to find further down the line that you have various clubs kicking up a fuss and, and refusing to accept the table as it is. I mean, again, I think if... If if the season doesn't finish and the, the Premier League isn't on 38 games, then I do think it's a valid argument to say that, that it is it is very, very punitive to be relegated in those circumstances. But what what I gain what I have more issue with was the, the comments by Stuart Webber, director of football down at Norwich, saying that even if Norwich finished bottom after thirty eight games, they would contest relegation or they would be unhappy with relegation on the basis that Leeds, West Brom or whoever else hadn't finished the season if the championship wasn't played to a conclusion. And I, I I just don't understand that argument and I don't see how on earth they could expect that to, to hold up. And why really any consideration should be given to them on on the basis of what's gone on in, in the division below. But I, I find it hard to think that if the Premier League season doesn't conclude and, and if the clubs are left thinking that they might have stayed up had, had it been played properly and, and reached a conclusion, then it's hard to see anything other than an almighty fight about that. We did cover this one off in our podcast earlier in the week, the Norwich situation, and Stuart Webber, who we should add for the sake of the record on this podcast, he grew up a Leeds fan, previously had a season ticket. He's their sporting director. If they see out their season as you just said and play 38 games and they're relegated on sporting merit what concern is it of theirs whatsoever what happens in the league below it's nothing to do with them if they've been relegated is it how the other team comes up to replace them Absolutely not. And and the point I would make as well is that right from the start, Leeds have said that the, the order of priority of, of what they wanted to happen was to resume games with um, crowds there. If not that, resume games behind closed doors. And if not that, be promoted um, by points per game on the basis that they, you know, they, they are, as it stands, the best team in the championship. And there's no there's no argument about that. And I haven't heard a single dissenting voice from Leeds about that including amongst the players and I think there are two reasons for that the first is that they would much rather win promotion having played 46 games than playing 37 because they know it's the old asterisk 
debate and, and they know that that will follow them around to some degree but also that there is the feeling that they want to finish off the season in the way that they weren't able to last last season and because they lost their nerve and, and form when it mattered so you know you, you've heard this week people like Troy Deeney saying he won't go back to, to training with Watford and actually I think when you listen to Deeney's reasons what he's saying is, is very fair and reasonable I, I totally understand where he's coming from particularly with regards to, to his child and, and you know the, the, the health and well-being of his child but at Leeds I get the sense that they're, they're all to get going I don't think there's anybody there who feels like they would rather not be getting the games going if they could so when it comes to you know the championship being decided um, on points per game I don't think it's actually what Leeds want I don't think it's what they want to go for and and that in itself kind of weakens this argument from Norwich that if they finish the season and Leeds don't there should be some question over whether anybody's relegated I mean it's a point we've mentioned before but it bears repeating that not only do I want us to have the day I also want the players and Bielsa to have the day if we are to get promoted from this division by seeing it out. At least, even if they do it behind closed doors, we'll get a shared experience. It'll be a shared experience online. There'll still be celebrations. It's going to feel completely subdued compared to what we would expect if there's no event to market. Though I suspect it'll be better than finding out you've been relegated in those same terms. Well, last week in this part of the show, we told the story of Alan Smith, who's a player who went across the Pennines to Manchester United after saying that he never would. So it's nice to be able to contrast it this week with a story of a guy, a hero of ours, one of our all-time club legends in modern terms, who didn't make that move and stuck with Leeds, Lucas Radebe. And you've done a big piece with him this week, Phil. How was that? It was great. I mean, he's he, he's a funny guy, Lucas, um, because he, he never feels like he interviews particularly well. And he was saying to me he doesn't like the sound of his voice. And I think he, he finds media work quite a challenge or, or doesn't feel that it comes very naturally to him but when you get him going he, and you get him in full flow he's got great stories to tell and he's got a fascinating life to, to talk about which I'm never sure that people fully understand or, or really appreciate because it, it was hard for him bro- growing up in Soweto it was extremely politically unstable in South Africa it was very dangerous it was very easy to be drawn into crime and, and trouble over there in the townships in, in, in the way that Lucas was when, when he was a teenager but it, it I put up a poll, obviously, for Section 3 of, of this podcast, as we always do, and without wanting to um, to kind of give the game away too much, uh, one of the, the options was best for an import at Ellen Road. And I've thought about this, and, and I don't know about you three, but I'm struggling to, to look beyond Radaby, really. I think there are some other great suggestions and some other quality, quality players who've come in and, and players who've, who've really made a lasting mark, your, your Boas and your, your Vidukas and everybody else. And, he, and more recently, somebody like Pablo Hernandez, um, who's, who's been a great addition coming from Spain but in in terms of Radaby, I'm not sure anybody coming into the club in the way that he does has made so much impact in, in a kind of cultural sense really he, he still strikes me as one of the most popular players to have played for the club at, in any era and, and at any stage and it was interesting I did a, a few months back I spoke to Don Matteo and said to him can you pick your best uh, 11 that you've played with and have a, you know, have a chat about the players tell some stories about them and there were little funny gambits in there like David Batty um, taking out Joe Cole down a very young Joe Cole down at West Ham but when he got on to, to Radaby he said if you asked asked around in football and Matty was talking about himself here he says if you asked around in football you'd find people who don't like me and, and I know that but there was genuinely no one who ever seemed to have a problem with Lucas and I wonder whether for you three there's anybody who's come from abroad for an import that you would you would put above him in the list Probably not in all honesty I think in recent years Becchio and Hernandez would probably be the two that would be worth mentioning but in terms of the number of games they've played and the level they've played at, they're obviously nowhere near him. Does Scotland count as abroad for these purposes? Because there's a few who've come from there and have uh, got a claim, but certainly in 
in my recollection, nobody seems to have had the impact that um, Vardabee's had. And, um, and like Matthew was saying, kind of united everybody the way Vardabee has, because I don't think you'd find many fans have got a bad word to say about him either. I'd say Yeboah you could probably put right up there, but Yeboah's impact was fairly short when you consider it against Radabay's and expectation came in with Yeboah, whereas Radabay, it was a bit of a punt, wasn't it? I mean, took a chance on him. It was almost Phil Masinga's mate, who was the player we were supposed to be going after at the time. So in terms of sheer value and longevity and character, but also social impact as well, when you factor all that into it, it's that kind of heady mix of how we pick all our heroes and Radabay's right up there at the top. There's probably a good comparison to be made with Yeboah and, and Radaby in that when Radaby arrived, we printed his name spelt wrongly on the back of his shirt for his first substitute appearance, called him Radaby and sent him onto the pitch. Um, and Yeboah's Leeds career ended with him throwing his shirt at, um, at George Graham, which I think a lot of, I think most people recognised it wasn't a disrespected Leeds United shirt. It was the manager he didn't like, but a few people have you know, still hold that against him, that it's something that should never have been done. So if you wanted to have the the story of two shirts, there's a there's a difference the way Radaby and Yeboah ended up at Leeds. Interestingly as well, and, and I always find this when you get talking to people like that properly and, and get to, to chat to them in depth, he was absolutely not Phil Masinga's mate, not not when they came over. And, and I never realised this, but I, I, I always assumed because of the way it was done and because of the, the narrative that went along with the transfers, which was that Masinga was the, the big sign and the, the exciting striker and Radaby was almost an, an add-on, even something of a, a babysitter, you know, fellow South African who could help Masinga settle in. And Radaby knew that that was what was said and... and at the time, I don't think I had any any great problem with it. Um, he and Masinga, were, well, as, as Radaby put it, were, were enemies really because they'd you had the centre back of um, of Radaby playing against the forward Masinga um, in the the South African leagues, and, and in one game, um, Masinga had punched Radaby and knocked him to the ground. Um, it had been a, a very very big story over there, um, and the two of them had, had not been friends from that point onwards. Um, and Radaby said, "When I came over to, to England, it was actually quite tense with him because we knew what had gone on before. We had this." And, you know, it, it kind of needed to be resolved because we were going to have to get on. You know, we were two South Africans in a different country. We were automatically going to be pushed together. So in Diggs, in Holbeck and, and in Beeston. And it was important that we were able to get over that. And they did. And they became very close. And, and Radavi spoke at the, the memorial service for Masinga after Masinga died, died last year. But I think, it you know, it, it was a difficult move to England, even though it was a, a big, exciting opportunity. It was a you know, one of the first points at which players from South Africa like Radavi had been able to move abroad you know, to pursue a football career because of apartheid it'd been almost impossible prior to then and you know he said in, in, in a lot of ways in periods when he was in Soweto it was difficult for him to even go out of Soweto because he didn't have the ID cards he needed he didn't have the paperwork that he needed to, to get around what was in an apartheid state I think it's easy to look at him now and, and just think of him as a great player but actually he, he's come through an, an awful lot of complexity in his life and, and he's become this this figure who's an icon at Leeds but also an icon um, in South Africa and, and you always find yourself going back to that famous quote from Mandela saying that, that Radaby was his hero because I mean in anywhere in the world and from anyone in the world it's, high, it's difficult to think of what you would class as higher praise than that. It's worth emphasising that social context at the time for anybody, anybody who's not old enough to appreciate the situation that you say oh South African player in the English Premier League now foreign imports a ten a penny but back then it was almost unheard of. It was, it was a pioneer in many ways. 
He was, and and I think he felt like, a, a, and he's always reluctant. He's a bit of an almost like an unintentional um, pioneer. But I think he felt that way as well when he moved to Kaiser Chiefs. He'd he'd been he'd grown up in Soweto and he had a big family. He was one of ten siblings, and they were in a, a small four roomed house that they you know the kids had to cram onto the floors and and the kitchen and and the dining room. And I think they were a happy family, and and I think they had a bit of money. The, his dad what um, running fleet cars, so it wasn't as if they were destitute or poor to the the point where they couldn't live. But obviously in the area it was massively politically unstable and he was involved in riots he said quite openly he was involved in hijacking cars and various bits of crime because that was just what they got sucked into the police were absolutely the enemy in their eyes um, in Soweto and there was constant trouble there was tear gas in the street that you know um, you had you had people people dead in the streets that's that's how it was and, and that's how dangerous it was so his parents shipped him out to a state up north which was completely different it was you know it, it had been declared independent by South African government the apartheid government um, but it was a world away from Soweto and he said when he got up there you know he was used to wearing earrings and having long hair and none of that was allowed and it was completely different and then all of a sudden there he is going back to, to Kaiser Chiefs and he said it, it was a really really big story for, for my community that it really was you know the fact that I was joining this this huge club in Johannesburg that, that were about to become you know the 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 sort of big powerhouse of, of South African football. Although interestingly, his mum wasn't keen and his mum wasn't happy about the fact that he he was going for a career in football rather than teaching or a job as a doctor or, or something like that because she didn't see it as a as a legitimate profession or a profession that he should be doing in, in his entire life. And, and, you know, we spoke a lot about that. And he said that even towards the end, you know, even in the years before um, his mother died, he never got the feeling that she'd ever been convinced that actually football was something he should have been spending his professional life doing. So worth probably expanding upon what sort of a footballer Lucas Radebeck was, because there will be people who wouldn't have seen him play or wouldn't necessarily appreciate how good he was if they didn't see him. So what sort of a player was Radebeck? For the first couple of seasons, I don't think we actually knew, because he was brought in, brought in as this defender, but then Wilkinson played him in midfield half of the time. He never got a decent run in the team. And it was it was George Graham, essentially, who turned him into this machine of a centre-back who could all of a sudden I think maybe playing further forward in some games had helped him because he was he could read a game really well he was he was actually had a decent turn of pace in his younger days as well when as he got older and the injuries caught up with him he did lose that but it was fairly quick just very good in the air but it was it, what I mainly think of him as doing is just reading the game incredibly well and cutting out attacks before he has to do any of the sort of the big slide tackles or anything although he could do that as well he could he could he had a very nice style of just getting hooking his leg around someone just to knock the ball away at the last minute yeah, a while ago I watched, um, I found an old South Africa game from about 1992 that Radaby and Masinga were both playing in. And you could see straight away what Radaby had, you know, eight years later at Leeds that we all saw was, was present in, in some of the ways he moved and the way he, he approached the, the game. This, this thing of always having his, his head up and he'd kind of, um, have the ball at his feet. If you ever see a photograph of Lucas Radaby with the ball at his feet, he's never looking forward. His head always seems to be off at an angle as if he's looking around the pitch to see where the, the ball could go. And it was, it was awkward at, at first because nobody did really know what he was going to do, where he's going to play that, that debut when he came on with his, his shirt spelt wrong. He was put on the left wing. And, um, I think he said there were periods when he did wonder what, he, what he was doing at Leeds. Um, and Howard Wilkinson couldn't really figure figure out a role for him. And obviously, he had Nigel Worthington for his left wing role, so he couldn't he couldn't dislodge uh, dislodge the fossil. Watching some games as well with Radaby and Wood, Woodgate side by side, it is it's it's that change to modern defending, which perhaps somebody who grew up playing in South Africa in the the late nineteen eighties, um, it's quite surprising that they are 
they became a leading exponent of the way that European football and world football was changing, that it wasn't about massive centre-halves flying through the back of you with the elbows going and getting one in early on big centre-forwards. It's all about reading the passes, seeing where they're going to go. The Roma game, um, the famous Roma game at Elland Road, which I can't now actually remember if Lucas played in. He must have done. But the, the style of defending in that, you can see Leeds made this choice that they, they couldn't get near Totti, but they could stop any of Totti's passes reaching his strikers. And that's what they did. And it was all just about interceptions, blocks. Um, and when necessary, Lucas was great with a, a last-ditch tackle. Radaby said um, himself that he, when he was playing in Soweto, they, they, had very, they had nothing in the way of pitches. Um, they had no kit, they had no boots. They used to stuff hard footballs full of cloth and socks and fabric to try and make it softer to play with. And, and also, they, they had to play in tight, narrow streets where you didn't have a lot of space and you could break windows if you weren't careful. So the option to play long ball footballer to, to hoof it just wasn't there and, and he thinks and I've heard other South Africans say this as well that he thinks that's a, a, a key part of why South African football developed in, in the way that it did I, I did an interview after the turn of the year with Jerry Francis who was the first um, first black player to play for Leeds and again a, a South African and he said you know it, it's a very specific type of football in South Africa and again it's because of how we grew up and how the way particularly the black community how, how they played um, and I think in fairness to Wilkinson it wasn't as if he was the first person that was kind of struggling that was struggling to nail down Radaby's best position Radaby had started out as a goalkeeper by chance um, because the local club when he was away at secondary school needed a keeper at the start of the season so he agreed to, to fill in and then when he went to, to Kaiser Chiefs he, he played in midfield for a while um, until there was a senior player retired there and there was a vacancy at centre back and, and he shifted to that position and, and started to adapt to it but you did get the sense particularly the early early stages in England that he was a, a slightly lost sheep really he was looking for looking for somewhere to play was looking for a definite position and he's adamant that had he not done his cruciate at the point that he did I think it was in 1995 that he would almost certainly have left the club because he wouldn't have qualified for a work permit he wasn't playing enough under Wilkinson and he wouldn't have met the stipulation um, that the, the FA insisted on but because he was injured the club were able to say look you know by this stage he would have been playing regularly. Um, he would have been getting a chance. He would have been in the team. And the only reason he isn't is because he's had this horrendous injury and, and you should um, give him some leeway, which they did. Um, he stayed and, of course, went on to be arguably, you know, arguably one of the best players, if not the best player since the, the Wilkinson era. It is odd that he hadn't got, got himself into that team because it was hardly a vintage Leeds defence he was trying to break into. I mean, David Weatherall was always quite reliable, but there was him and then it was people like John Pemberton and Richard Jobson and Paul Beasley, who were all very short-term signings. Like they, they never felt like they were going to be around for long, mainly because most of them were the kind of early 30s by that stage. And when George Graham then all of a sudden built a team around Lucas, you did just think, why didn't we do this a little bit sooner? I think like Moscow says though he, he was a different type of, of player Radaby wasn't he he was, he was more expansive He's, I mean Moscow's absolutely right what you're saying about Radaby's awareness the modern phrase would, or the modern world would be scanning you know that skill that you're supposed to have if you're going to be a top player and he seemed to be always seemed to be very good at being able to read the pitch and, and read what was coming or, or where the ball should be going and, and I guess you need a certain type of team to or a certain type of style to play in and, and I wonder you'll know better than me but I wonder whether or not that was Wilkinson and, and whether he was ever going to fit in, in that type of, of style and, and you know even even with, with George Graham would he you know would it ultimately 
have suited him to have been in a, a George Graham side for year after year, given the way that George Graham preferred to play? Or, or was it better for Radaby when it really opened up under O'Leary and, and Leeds became a, a different team again? He, he just seemed like a, a high quality player. And, and I always think about that quote from Ferguson, you know, back around the, the turn of the turn of the millennium, saying that everybody should be interested in, in Radaby. And they were very interested in Radaby, but sadly for Ferguson, Radaby wasn't interested in them. What was your big takeaway from this, Phil? What do you think you learned from Lucas Radebay when you spoke to him? I think I learned about how difficult his, his upbringing was and the massive challenge in going from an environment where it's riots and tear gas to a point, you know, and, and albeit 20 years later and, and a long way down the line, where you're one of the most famous people in South Africa. You're one of the most respected people over there. You, you're literally somebody who Mandela used to have round for tea from time to time and somebody who can walk around in, in South Africa and in Leeds without seeming to have made any enemies at all and having this kind of un, unbelievable level of, of popularity it's almost improbable when you, you look at it closely and, and you look at his background and I just think he's a, a genuinely nice guy which is sometimes quite difficult to say about people in football there aren't always that many of them football can do funny things to people it can change people's personalities and, and their characters for the worse but he still seems to have that real joy about him and, and that you know that big broad smile and, and twinkle in his eye and, and when you think about the difficulties he's, he's had in his life losing his wife when she was 34 to cancer so, you know, the upbringing in, in Soweto, the townships and the, the deprivation that was there. It's amazing to think about what he went on to achieve and, and who he is now. He's always worn the fame quite easily, Lucas. It's never sort of burdened him, I don't think. It's never subdued him. It's not made him awkward. He's this dead, easygoing guy. Me and Michael interviewed him, in fact, some years ago for the square ball. We did it in the West Stand at Ellen Road. And there's a kind of aura around him. I was a little bit starstruck kind of not scared of him, but just in awe of him, looked at him in the way that you would look at a rock star, like one of your heroes. But he always has time for you. And and he is deep down, I think, quite a shy bloke. I, I don't think he's a, a massive extrovert. And it's not that he doesn't appreciate the attention or unnecessarily like the attention, but I don't think he craves it. And I don't think he, he lives for it. And I, I asked him about that Mandela quote, and he, he said he struggles to believe that it's him that, that Mandela was speaking about, because he just thinks of himself as one of the other players, um, one of the one of the guys in the dressing room, as, as he put it. But I think that's why when he looks back, he has no regrets at all about saying no to, to Manchester United. And, and also he said he had opportunities at various points to go to Italy and join Lazio or, or Roma. But I think deep down, he feels that none of those clubs would have given him what he had at Leeds, which was the chance to be a captain, chance to be a, a proper leader, chance to be a bit of an, an icon, a, a, a club legend. And, you know, you can sense sometimes when you interview people and get chatting about their careers that there are things that they wish they'd done differently or, or things that they wished they had changed but even though by the time he left Leeds had been relegated and were, were in the championship and, and were a mid-table championship side in, in Blackwell's first season I don't think at any point he felt like he should have made different decisions Part 3 of the show and we turn it over to you and it's provided some robust opinions on Twitter which is where you can find the poll to decide what we should talk about three options every single week on Phil's Twitter account in third place this week a little bit closer to this one than the polls have been in recent weeks. Third place, 22% was the January 2011 window when not a right lot happened on debates. Second, best foreign import debate, 35%. But the winner, Paul Rohubka, 43% of the vote. A man who, when you say his name, people will probably smile in a kind of farcical way nowadays. 
I think your mate Emo drove this uh, this poll in, in a certain direction. Um, the, the foreign imports had a, a, an early and, and healthy lead, but there was some appetite for a chat about Rehubka. And yeah, I think I think if you were around in that period um, in in 2011 when it all went horribly wrong for him, it's one of those nights you would you would like to forget, but but literally can't. The thing about Rehubka is it's not all about Blackpool, and it's not all about that period of games where it just is his. Fortunes just seem to deteriorate error by error and, and, and game by game. He was kind of symptomatic of the way in which Leeds went from promotion in 2010 and, and a big, big push for the playoffs and, and you know what should have been a big push for the top two in, in 2011 to the point where the squad fell apart, re- recruitment lost its marbles completely and the investment fell to a level where they just weren't able to be competitive um, again. And, and he was actually the first signing of that summer transfer window in 2011. He, he came in late June, literally the last week of the month um, and, and at a point where there was a lot of grumbling and a lot of gnashing teeth in the city about the fact that Leeds didn't seem to be doing any business at all and they needed two keepers at Leeds because they'd sold Casper Schmeichel to, to Leicester City and there was a definite sense of the, the outgoing deals outweighing the quality of the incoming deals so Schmeichel went um, Neil Kilkenny went Bradley Johnson went um, Max Grader was sold to Saint-Étienne in, in France and you were talking about four players there who'd been key parts of the side that had gone close to the playoffs in the championship the previous season and incomings you had Rehubka you had Andy Lonigan so two goalkeepers there you had Michael Brown who came in on trial and then signed on a free Mikhail Forsell and Varanen who people might remember Dan O'Day on loan Andy um, Keogh on loan Danny Pugh on loan it was it, it, stop, well, Phil, it, stop, is, it is really isn't it um, and much. when you set the two lists against each other you realise why it was that um, a couple of months after Rehubka's um, night, of, night of disaster at Ellen Road Grayson was sacked and, and they went for Neil Warnock but essentially having waited for a long long time and, and many many weeks for a signing to come in the first signing was Paul Rehubka who Grayson knew from Blackpool and who was available on a free but who you never felt was likely to be first choice keeper and who you never felt was likely to, to seriously compete uh, if somebody else more credible in, in that position came in. And in the end, Lonigan arrived from Preston and, and was installed in uh, as first choice keeper. Um, and for several months in that position, there was no problem at all. He was professional backup, was Rohobka though, wasn't he? He'd never really been a first choice keeper in his whole career. I mean, we did an extra ball bit on contrasting Rohobka and Gary Sprague, sort of keepers who've drawn a lot of headlines at Ellen Road in terms of notoriety for different reasons. But he's always kind of been that guy who... A bit like Stuart Taylor, who kind of picked up your, your paycheck, played for the reserves, the professional backup goalie, if you like. The exception to that had been at Blackpool, where when when Grayson was manager, he'd won promotion from League One through the playoffs, and that that and, and Huddersfield, but they they would be the two moves in the two clubs where he was able to rack up a, a decent number of um, of appearances. And it isn't so much like Stuart Taylor, who did who did genuinely seem to just move around looking for another bench to sit on. You know, the, in the end, it was a good three hundred and thirty odd games for Rahubka in, in league matches, and you know, not far off um, three hundred and fifteen total across all competitions but you're right um, it, he did he certainly felt like professional backup when he came in and you know Lonergan 
Lonergan was decent without being spectacular, but he was steady. And and right up until the point uh, in October when he broke a finger, 3-0 win over Doncaster, and people remember that game um, for McCormack's, Ross McCormack's overhead kick, which was the pick of the goals. But the kind of key moment in that was Lonergan breaking a finger in the second half and, and being replaced by Rahubka. And, and Leeds being forced to rule Lonergan out for, for a couple of months, really until Christmas. And, and realising at that stage that they would have to turn to Rahubka, but actually Grayson not having a huge problem with that because he felt that Rahubka would hold up okay and, and that you know he'd signed him precisely for, for that reason um, but without question it was bringing in somebody that had been kind of idle for, for a good while and, and I, I always feel that there's never a more difficult position to be dropped into at short notice than, than goalkeeper One of the things that we noticed from doing that extra ball episode on him was that just about every single goalie we conceded when he was in net he was in some way at fault it's remarkable we looked at them one by one this whole record at Ellen Road and he was in terrible form throughout why was that? It's actually really uncomfortable to watch and he, he had he had played earlier in the season in, in a League Cup game against Doncaster but it was the usual thing giving you your second choice goalkeeper a bit of a run in, in a game that's not of, of huge consequence but you remember his first start which in the league which was at home to Coventry and Obviously, the, the the tension beforehand had been on the fact that Grayson was going to have to change keepers and would that be an issue and would there be any problem? And, you know, obviously he said no, he, he had plenty of faith in Rehubkin and it would be fine. And it was fine for, for 94 minutes until... Out of nowhere, Rahubka spilt across from the right, right into the path of Richard Wood, who, who knocked in a tap-in, and Coventry got away with a, a one-all draw. Needless to say, that completely dominated the narrative after that game. It, it went from what was going to be a steady win, and, and the kind of match report where you'd mentioned in it, Rahubka came in, but was fine, there was no great issue, and you know Leeds didn't particularly miss Lonergan, to suddenly it being all about the fact that they had lost Lonergan, and because of that, there'd been this error at the end of the game, and, and it was all on on Rahubka and so you moved on to Peterborough where really neither goal shone a particularly great light on him you moved on to Birmingham where he panned the ball out to Nikola Zigic who banged it into a fairly empty net there was the mix up with Dan O'Day in a one-all draw against Cardiff and then we moved on to Blackpool at home and, and the problem for Grayson in that period was that there was no alternative there was nobody else he could have gone for other than Alex Cairns who at that point was you know academy goalkeeper hadn't played in a senior game and you know was was very much a very much a punt at that point and by picking him certainly to start a game it would have been essentially drawn a line under Rahubka's career there and then which obviously happened anyway um, after the Blackpool game but I think in Grayson's head even if and he never said this at the time but even if he started to have severe concerns about um, about the way Rahubka was playing and, and the mistakes he was making he would have known that, that by putting Cairns in to start against Blackpool or, or any game when Rahubka was available to, to play it would have absolutely killed him there and then so we've had this long run up to the Blackpool game and it's Sod's law, of course, that it's against his former club. And a complete meltdown on the night in question. And it went beyond anything I think we've ever seen and probably will see again, Touchwood at Ellen Road. What happened that night? Well, I've seen a lot of players have poor games and I've seen a lot of players have games where you do feel like it would be best for them if, if they could just escape and, and go off and hide somewhere for a while. But it doesn't often translate from one bad game into a situation where they the entire crowd have deserted you and, and the entire crowd want, want rid of you. It has to be remembered that in that season, Leeds were not a good team and they'd gone from being a very 
slick attacking side who couldn't really defend particularly well under Grayson to a side who still weren't defending brilliantly but actually didn't have anything like the same verve going forward either minus your Kilkenny's and Johnson's and, and more significantly Max Gradle out wide so it was kind of building that the results had been very mixed Leeds were struggling to, to hang in to the playoffs and at the same time they were coming up against a Blackpool side who, who were very good very capable and, and had decent players on the side they had John Joe Shelby they had Lou Alois Callum McManaman Tom Ince um, Barry Ferguson before he he went fully over the hill um, and I mean Ferguson that night Shelby controlled the game but Ferguson as well was just able to sit in the way that he loved to do um, in his, his later years and, and ping the ball around um, but it the problem on the night was that any time Blackpool got anywhere near um, Rohobka in the first half, he was making mistakes and it was costing them goals. So by the 31st minute, Lees are 3-0 down and they've lost Tom Lees to a red card because Lees has had to handle the ball after um, Rohobka's dropped across in the box. And if you recall, you had the crowd chanting off, off, off. Grayson, I think, knew at that stage that something had to happen. And his, his decision, rather than to make a change on the half hour, was to wait until half time. But what he did do, and I think, you know, again, he's, I've never heard him say this, but I think he, from a, a managerial point of view, he would regret doing this. He sent Alex Cairns out to warm up with about 10 minutes of the first half to go. And there was a huge cheer around Ellen Road um, as, as Cairns went down the touchline. And, and I went to see Alex over at Fleetwood for a completely different piece before, before Christmas. But it's very difficult to cross paths with Cairns and not to mention that night. It was his only um, appearance for Leeds. He came on for Rehubka um, for the second half. His only appearance in, in, in the most bizarre circumstances, in the most awful circumstances, Circumstances, and I think he felt a lot of sympathy for Rahab because as another goalkeeper would but I think also Cairns kind of felt that being asked to do that at that point in the first half was not great because it was it was basically taking a keeper who as Blackpool's third, game, third goal went in was lying on the ground with his face in the grass knowing that the, that if the ground could swallow up swallow him up he'd rather that it did it was kind of it was worsening the humiliation a hundredfold um, and I, I always have that image in my head of Rahabka walking off the pitch carrying his gloves looking like looking like he wanted to collapse and and it's funny because if you look back at the end of the Coventry game after that mistake that you know the first error that kind of led to all this he's got the same body language um, he's got that same dejection and, and you know, demoralised look of somebody who, who it's all gone wrong for except you knew in the Blackpool game that you would never ever see him play for Leeds again and that's the truth at the heart of this when this happens when a player gets yanked like that that's the end of a player's career at a club particularly goalkeeper I'm particularly interested to find out from Michael and Moscow your memories of that night the atmosphere inside Ellen Road because sometimes Ellen Road can do this when it flicks over to this kind of destructive almost nihilistic kind of atmosphere where you just want things to go wrong you never like to see it happen but when it does happen there's something almost alluring almost exciting about it Exciting's maybe a bit of a stretch it was I don't know, it was a bit sad in some ways. And also, I think the, the reason for chanting off, 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 though, was just to make sure it happened, I think, because everyone could see it needed to. And I mean, as you said, the game is prior to that. I mean, the Coventry goal on the, on his first start was horrific. Like, as, a, as the second one in this was, it was literally just a case of catching a ball. It's the sort of stuff you'd expect a goalkeeper to do 200 times and complete 200 times. It's not difficult stuff. So to see someone just making them the most fundamental errors. It just meant you needed to get him off. And I think the crowd doing it was just to make sure Grayson realised that. On reflection, and out of the heat of the moment of thinking, I can't believe I've wasted my Tuesday night watching us getting beaten because we've got a guy in, in the goal who shouldn't be a professional footballer. On the human side of it, you do look back and you think, yes, it must have been awful for him. And I'm sure he wasn't trying to be awful. But 
without exception, when he played for Leeds United, he was awful. Every single goal he was at fault for in some respect. So it's hard to have too much sympathy for him. It does get forgotten with this game a bit because the final score was 5-0, that he left at 3-0 and that two of those goals, the second and third, were were only a few minutes apart. And I think that's what contributed to sort of the the pressure of the thing. It was all the games before. That's the big part of the story that gets left out of his his collapse against Blackpool. We'd, We'd been watching him for several weeks and he was poor and we all knew it. And there's kind of that thing of every game going there saying, well, he's giving him another chance. The first goal was bad and then the second and third in quick succession. The second was the one where everybody's minds made up about Rohopka at Leeds and then the third one happened a few minutes later and with him being in front of the cop, it was a mixture of anger because you have got a lot of people who've paid a lot of money and they they want to see footballers at that level be at least competent um, and he was not. And so there was a, a great deal of genuine anger coming from the cop. But then also I think... Um, as Michael's saying, the, the, the off, off, off thing was to make it, make sure Grayson got the message and it happened, but also for his own good as much as anybody else's, because there was no happy outcome to him standing on that pitch for another 45 minutes, just flapping at everything and, and being terrible and, and facing it. The only thing you could do for his good, for our good, for everybody's good was to, to get him off the pitch. And that's what crowds do is that they, that when they've got, once they've made a decision, they, um, they say it out loud. And, and I think once the initial sort of disbelief and anger had subsided, it became grimly funny. Um, as it often does at Leeds, where you, I remember being on the cop and just looking around at people and just going, you, you genuinely couldn't believe what you were watching it. And it started to feel like, um, an event. It's like you knew after the third goal, you'll always remember where you were, that you were at this game and you saw this happen. And, and it started to become almost like a little, sort of like a festival atmosphere in, in some respects, which, which sounds mean, but it's better than, than people being out for his, I'll say his gloves rather than his blood, but I suspect a few people wanted his blood. To give you some idea of of how confused the whole situation got and and how baffled everybody was um, by what was going on, when the... um well, the second goal was scored by Shelby. It was a penalty because um, Lee's had, had tried to stop the, the ball going in with his hand after a hub could come out for it. And Lee's got a straight red card for for that, which was absolutely the right decision and, and was obviously you know, another black mark on Rahubka's record. And as Lee's walked off, and no word of a lie, he got to the touchline. And I, I was watching him and, and watching Grayson. And Grayson said to him, where are you going? To which um, Tom Lee said to him, I've been sent off. And literally, Grayson just turned around and said, fucking hell. And at that point, you could you realise that everybody had lost it. You know, it, 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 was, it was just developing into one of those situations where every time Blackpool put the ball in the box, it looked like Blackpool were going to score. And it really was a case of saving himself from himself. I mean, I'd, I'd probably dispute Moscow's idea that people were chanting off, off, off because they, they felt for him and wanted him to go. I, I think they were chanting off, off, off because they just could not take any more of it. But he was, like a lot of players at Leeds, actually, in the past sort of 15 years, he was a victim to an extent of certainly of his own form, but also of the bigger picture, which was that Leeds as a team were once again deteriorating and the investment hadn't been there and the squad building hadn't been there and good players had been allowed to go and had been replaced with inferior players. And there was huge frustration in the stands because not only were you looking at the worst goalkeeping performance you'd ever seen or were likely to see again, you were looking at a side who looked nothing like 
as good as you needed to be to get in the playoffs. And, and in those circumstances, at least, you, you, you're in a lot of trouble. I think the uh, the problem of that era is kind of summed up by the, the team lineups. There's nothing in Leeds United's defence that night to necessarily defend Rahubka, but hey, that was the problem, Badumchish. But when you've got the back four, is is Paul Connolly, Tom Lees, Paddy Kiznobo, who he was in his last few games for Leeds. He only lasted a, a couple of months with injuries after this. And then it'll either have been Danny Pugh or, or A.D. White playing left back. There's not a lot of quality in there. On its day, yes, but as a group, that doesn't look like a, a top of the championship uh, defence anymore. The rest of the team, Adam Clayton, Johnny House and Robert Snodgrass, Andy Keogh, Ross McCormack, you've got Luciano Becchio on the bench. And that imbalance between the front, which was a party, and the back, which was a funeral, was really what was spoiling Leeds at that point. If the defence had been as good as the the attack, I think you were talking about a side that could have challenged. Phil, in your time following watching Leeds, then have you ever seen another performance which comes at anything near this in terms of a, a one off catastrophe, which means you can never play again? No, not at all. And I think it takes something quite special in a negative sense for one game to to finish you. And and I suppose you would say that in the end it wasn't one game; it was an accumulation of of matches leading up to that. But no, I mean you you sort of. When I even try to dig out comparisons going going back, you're, you're looking at guys like Mark Hazelwood, but for completely different reasons. You know, nothing really to do with with form as such. Um, although, again, I, I assume that he was not playing well in that period. But it was the confrontation with the crowd that that did for him in that sense. It, it's quite rare for a player to to play so badly that I mean, I I remember in Grayson's press conference afterwards, Grayson trying to be charitable and saying, "Look, he's had a desperate night, and there's nothing I can really say to him about that." But I do still trust him you know I, I do still believe in him which wasn't the case you know he was he was just saying what he, he felt he had to, to say but I came down the stairs and I heard um, one of the, the hierarchy at Leeds say and this was a, a Wednesday night and they were due at Leicester um, on, on the Sunday saying we have got to get another keeper before Leicester we're going to have to get somebody and by about lunchtime the next day they were well down the road with them um, with getting Alex McCarthy um, from Reading um, and it was amazing the way in which it just finished him there and then and amazing the way in which everybody said he just can't play for the club again. There is no way anybody's going to be able to rely on him and in any way that Grayson's going to be able to, to put him into to his team. And... You know, I'd, I'd like to think that you'll never see another player suffer like that because you, you kind of touched on the, the mental health side and, and he was actually on a, a podcast recently, Rahubke. He went on a podcast called the, the Goalkeepers Union and he was saying in there that it was extremely difficult for for him but also for his family you know he said it was his family who who really suffered most because he became a figure of fun and and while he'd kind of learned to deal with that and to grow a a thick skin over the years they'd never really experienced it before they'd never really been in a situation where they were seeing him in the firing line to to that extent somebody who'd been so sort of abjectly abjectly humiliated Um, and and I imagine for him it was horrendous I imagine it it was really tough and I I did see him on the touchline as he left Ellen Road that night and he looked at 100% a broken man. He stuck around for a couple of weeks um, but but was barely seen and then took a loan out to Tranmere which I think at, at the time was just a case of any port in a storm really and, and any club anywhere that, that he 
could go to. I think for what it's worth, he was a better keeper than that level. And and he he actually said on the podcast that from from there on, from the the Leeds debacle onwards, um, he didn't play at a level or achieve anything like he felt he should have done or or might potentially have done in the years that he had left. But from there on, it was Leighton Orient, Accrington, Oldham, Crew, you know, round the houses until um until he retired in in two thousand and seventeen. But you you look back at it and you say that it was the end of him as a as any sort of goalkeeping force at a, a decent level it, it really did finish him Phil, Michael, Moscow thank you for that one we'll wrap it up there if you want to participate in the vote for next week's part three on the podcast have a look on Phil's Twitter feed and it's the last chance across the next week or so to subscribe to The Athletic using the Leeds pod deal there's a 90 day free trial there right now theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pods thanks for listening to this one we'll speak to you next week The Phil Hay Show 